The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Welcome everyone to this panel discussing the GFC and have we learned any lessons yet? Uh, I hope you found that video amusing. Of course, there is a serious side to what's going on at the moment. Question marks raised over the capacity of various countries in Europe to stay within the Eurozone, the spectre of debt in America, unfunded pension liabilities. Will China maintain its growth? Are these things we should be worried about here in Australia? And have we learnt any real lessons from the financial crisis of the past five or six years? These are some of the things that we're going to be looking at and discussing with our panellists here. So let me welcome them for you and introduce them. On my immediate left is the airport economist and the J.W. Neville Fellow in Economics at UNSW, Mr. Tim Harcourt. Welcome. On his left is a man, of course, who needs little introduction. You'll recognise him from the papers as the editor, the economics editor in the Sydney Morning Herald, and of late, the happy economist, Ross Gittins. And on his left, a former senior banker at Chase Manhattan, New York, and currently a partner in Pharos Coaching in Leadership Development and Executive Coaching, Dr Oliver Greaves. Well, Tim, quite appropriately, um, as an airport economist, you've quite literally just stepped off the plane where you've come from Canada. Just this morning, that's right. This morning, great. Well, how how do you see us faring relative to countries abroad when it comes to the GFC? Well, well, pretty well. I mean, um, as the Americans say, we've gone from uh, down under to down wonder uh, because basically (laughs) Australia's the place that uh, hasn't had a recession for 22 years and everything... um, that we've done, uh, particularly starting with the decision of Paul Keating to float the dollar, or Bob Hawke to float the dollar, depends who you, yep. you talk to. No mention of it in the Latham Diaries, but the decision to float the dollar, open up to Asia, meant that Australia's got very good domestic policy, and of course, moving you know, towards the Asia Pacific means we've gone from the, the tyranny of distance to the power of proximity. So it's a good story, uh, but not such a good story uh, in North America or Europe at the moment. Right. Oh, well, that's pleasing to hear to start with. Um, perhaps, though, the, the GFC has raised some fundamental questions about really our economic and financial system as we know it. I might turn to you, Ross, as uh, our chief economist here. Um, Hardly. Sh- <laughs> we, haven't in- we haven't got an Indian economist, we've got a chief economist. Well, a happy economist as well. Should, should we um, really have so much faith and confidence in the free market? Well, for a start, I don't believe there is such a thing as a free market. All markets are regulated to a greater or lesser degree. What we have been experiencing is, if you like, an experiment in greatly reducing the regulation of the financial system, uh, where the Americans went a lot further than we did, uh, and we're looking a lot in a lot better shape than, than they are. Uh, And I think the lesson from all that is really that uh, markets are fine. I'm a great believer in the capitalist system. I can't think of a better way 
to organise the economic dimension of our lives than via markets. But markets do need to be guided. They do need to work within a framework, a constraint, where, uh, to a large extent, the capitalists get saved from their own excesses, held back from their own excesses. I mean, that's really... Uh, part of the story of uh, as what to why we uh, came out of the GFC so lightly, because uh, we limited our bank's ability to merge. We we got them to the point where they were, we were down to four major domestic banks. They would love to have been able to take each other over, but successive governments said no. We're not going any lower than four. Uh, we had very tight prudential supervision of those banks and they kept out of trouble. You know, there's a sense in which the politicians who went for years enduring and resisting their pressure to, t- to give them greater freedom to do what the, all their business instincts led them to, to want to do, uh, they were the chief beneficiaries of the fact that our politicians, for their own reasons, wouldn't let them. From what both um, Tim and Ross has been saying, that part of our um, success of late is that we've struck a good balance between letting the market run but regulating. But you've touched on the issue of sort of the, the need for a certain level of self-interest to motivate those in the game. Oliver, you've uh, had many years' experience in banking and insurance. Um, how do you think we can um, best tap into people's self-interest without letting it come back and bite us? Well, I think, you know, my career sort of spans the whole recent financial story, um, starting off at a time when banks in the States were quite a bit different from what they are today, right through to uh, the recent past. And, you know, the compensation issues and the the issue of of, uh, the corruption of values, I think, is at the heart of all of this. And um, it's one element. There are th- I think there are three elements altogether that, that you know, have underlined the, the big problem, mainly in the United States and, and London. Um, and I think that the compensation aspect of it um, has been probably the most influential in terms of undermining values such as they were in the banking industry. And, and people rightly responded with moral outrage at, at the size of these bonuses and, uh, and, uh, and what traders were able to take home. Um, but part of the problem seems to be there, the, the pay was so short-term in its orientation without bearing the risks which another generation have to accept. So how, how can that be addressed? Well, I, I think that um, you know, compensation is going to be discussed for a, for a long time to come. But the big problem, I think, that occurred was perhaps less that people took, a, took home lots of money that they hadn't really earned um, than the fact that it really corrupted the risk management systems because people were really intent on driving through transactions which were fundamentally risky because um, there was a big pot of gold at the end of it for them personally. And um, that, I think, is the, is the issue which, which really worries regulators. Now I think now that the you know the horse is bolted. I mean I think now it's coming back into 
into, into a better system of balance between risk and reward. But that, that I think, is, the, is one of the key issues. Tim, you've um, invested a lot of your time um, in the trade union movement and the Labor Party. Um, do you see it almost as an inevitable consequence of our system that there will be an increasing inequality in wages? Well, no, no it's, not, it's not inevitable, nor, nor is it particularly desirable. Um, one reason I think Australia has been relatively successful as a society as well as an economy is that we've balanced the right to a fair go uh, in terms of distribution and the right to have a go in terms of entrepreneurial spirit that we've got, particularly through through immigration and a lot of the imports of human capital that we've had. I actually think there's two things that are, that are important, just picking up on Oliver's point, uh, about values and trust. Um, um, Senior you kindly mentioned the airport economist, there is a chapter about Argentina called Don't Buy From Me, Argentina. And what the book said, what that chapter said was that if you look at Argentina 100 years ago, it was richer than Australia. You know, uh, Buenos Aires was richer than, uh, than Melbourne. And um, basically, Argentina had all the same things as us. Great resources, great immigration, um, uh, basically a, a strong agricultural economy. And what Argentina did, did was it lost, it lost trust um, within its banking system. It, uh, it, it um, uh, pegged its uh, exchange rate to the American dollar while we had the float. And it basically defaulted on a lot of its fiscal situation. And you've got a situation now, perhaps summed up when... The great Maradona was, was interviewed and they said, what's your proudest moment in your life? And he said, the hand of God, when he, when he basically cheated in the World Cup in Mexico. In the same game, he scored the most brilliant goal from the back line, dribbling forward. And I think that was symbolic that uh, if the um, rationale that you've been able to get away with something, whether it be an executive salary or, or bonus, rather than doing something quite, quite honourable says a lot about the values in society. And I think for the most part in Australia, we've had our scallywags here and there, but we've basically built pretty good, pretty good institutions, particularly in the banking sector. We have a question coming through that I might turn to you, Ross. When it comes to the GFC, who's responsible, the country or the people who are taking out the loans, uh, the people who are the bankers? Who, who's responsible? I'd, ex I'd uh, spread the responsibility fairly widely if you uh, take on a loan, a home loan, that you, can't, that it, you only a moment's thought tells you you'll have great difficulty servicing, then you're responsible for that. You're not a fool. Uh, I think you thought that, well, these guys wouldn't give it to me if uh, I'll leave it to them to worry about whether or not I'm credit worthy. Uh, and they weren't, but they weren't worrying either. Uh, now, I think then, so, so I think, you know, when, when I take a loan that I shouldn't have taken, that overcommits me, that I can't possibly repay, you can criticise me, but you can also criticise the people who gave me the loan. They didn't seriously th think seriously enough about my ability to repay. That gets to the point that Oliver mentioned, which is distorted, perverse incentives. That's the lovely economist phrase, perverse incentives. Incentives where people got paid to do silly things and, and that does a lot to explain the GFC. Uh, at the same time, the regulators, governments and the regulators who work for governments really need to uh, ensure that people don't have that much liberty, that they can 
make uh, silly, silly, short-term, self-centred decisions and in the end create great difficulties for the community, including great difficulties for taxpayers who, if your institution is big enough, really have no choice. Governments in the end have no choice but to bail out these outfits. You cannot just let them hang out to dry because that will do so much damage, collateral damage, to all, all the ordinary people in the economy. Given that, you have, if, when you work back from that, then you say we have to set rules for these guys because if they screw up, we will have to pick them up, carry them, fix things up at great expense to the population generally. So I'd, I'd uh, express that all... I'd share the blame quite widely. Oliver? Yeah, I'd like to make another point about that. Um, this re actually refers more to the US than here, although maybe you can see some parallels here as well, and that's the subject of what's called regulatory capture, which is when people from the banking industry uh, join the political process and they are brought into positions of authority in various government oversight organizations and they bring with them their friends from, the, from in this case, Wall Street. Um, and then those people change the regulations to basically suit, satisfy and suit the conditions in which they've prospered. Now, that hasn't been talked about a lot in the press over here, but it has been a great deal uh, you know, discussed in the US. And I think that that is actually something that we don't think about a lot. But um, the Democratic Party in the US, which is usually the party that's worried about Wall Street and about money politics and so on and so forth, you know, made a sort of a, an alliance, if you like, during Bill Clinton's time with Wall Street. And many of the people that ran Wall Street, people like Robert Rubin, came over and became the Secretary of the Treasury and brought their friends with them entered many other agencies as well. And I think that that is perhaps something that um, is worrisome, that, uh, that uh, alliance, if you like, between moneyed interest and political interest. Would you like to comment on that? You know, both uh, Oliver and, and, and Ross made a good point about the relationship, as you said, between relative wages in the labour market and, and trust in a society. I mean, I've just come back from the United States. If you think the whole post-war consensus in the United States was basically a compact that said um, capitalism will bring great gains and wealth creation to the economy, but the American worker will get a, a fair share, and, and, they, and they did so um, right up until um, 20 years ago, where we're now in a situation where 90% of American workers haven't had real wage increases, and the great labour mobility that we used to see in America has gone. Um, when I was at graduate school in the United States looking at the labour markets in Australia compared to the United States, um, they had half our unemployment, uh, our unemployment rate. Now the positions are reversed. And um, even then people said that, well, we have low minimum wages in America, but people have the mobility to move up the ladder. Now the recent work in the US labour market shows um, lower minimum wages, no real wage gains, Labor mobility's gone. They're not able to move up the labor market. And, of course, they've got double the unemployment rate that, that we've got. So they've really lost that, that trust they had between capital and labor in America. And what I've uh, read lately is that possibly in this recovery in the States now, it's almost a 
a jobless recovery, and if not jobless, that, as you're saying, the real wages haven't been maintained. They haven't got the institutions. I mean, when I was uh, at graduate school, everyone told me, well, if only Australia got rid of the Arbitration Commission and trade unions and the ACTU and collective bargaining, we'd have this wonderful Nirvana labour market like the United States. But you've actually seen Australia, with all those terrible interventions that we have, generating jobs at a faster rate than, than the United States and having low unemployment and, um, and having a positive view towards uh, immigration and the role it plays in the economy. So it's quite an important test case. Um, before we move on to consider what are some of the values which I guess this exposes the global financial crisis, I'd like to just throw another question to you, Ross. Um, do you think we should expect more frequent fluctuations, more GFCs? Is the system prone to fragility? Uh, well, all capitalist systems are prone to, to cycles of boom and bust. Uh, we go through occasional periods of uh, overconfidence where we think uh, we've beaten the cycle, uh, but in every, every time we've thought that in the past, the people who've thought it have had, ended up with egg on their face, and that's perfectly true of the GFC. Um, so, the, so there's that. One of the things that I want to observe is that part of the problem when you talk about values, you can talk about incentives. There was so much money there to be gained. I pushed through these really dangerous transactions uh, because I was going to get money up front and if the thing fell apart, then who knows quite who would be picking up the tab, but probably I wouldn't be picking up very much of it at all. You can say all that. But another level, the way human nature works is that we pick up our ethics, our standards of acceptable behaviour from the behaviour of the people around us. That's the way humans do it, unless, and, you know, I look at what I'm doing and I, I think it's no, no worse than what you're doing. That's fine. Everybody does it. Probably everybody doesn't do it, but that's what I tell myself. Uh, what that's really saying is, if, if you, and that can really lead institutions, groups of people, and the Wall Street bankers would have to be the classic case, to really go off on a kind of ethical tangent where they all thought everything, that all of what they were doing was fine, it was the way the game was played, and they caused great damage, and not so much to themselves as to a lot of other people. And they did a lot of this, as we saw in the movie, with other people's money. That was part of the problem. If we could pick up on this issue of sort of corporate culture, um, and if I don't mind, if I turn it to you, Oliver, as you said, you've experienced banking over many years in different countries... Um, what, what is it that breeds, do you think, this sort of cowboy mentality? Uh, presumably, you can't behave like that at home. This sort of split personality almost. Well, well you can. yes. <laughs> well, I think, as I said earlier on, you know, if, you, if, 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 you, if you're paid $200,000 uh, last year and you're paid a million dollars this year, something's changed, right? And you have, people naturally begin to feel that the amount of money they're getting paid actually reflects the contribution they're making, which is not necessarily true, right? But I think there's a sort of a deeper issue which goes to the very heart of what is, 
what banking is about, which is that banking was mainly a principal business. In other words, I, as the banker, had a relationship with my client. I developed that relationship over many years. I knew their, their business well. I knew their financial situation well. I knew the character of the owners uh, and the managers, and I trusted them, right? Now, as soon as you move from that sort of principal, principal sort of banking into agency banking, where I don't... Um, I'm not going to keep this transaction on my book, so it's not that, as Ross was saying, it's not, not that important as to what the quality of it is. You start, thinking, you start thinking less about the people you're dealing with and more about how much money you're going to make out of this particular transaction, how I can move it off the books as fast as I can. That creates in the mind of the bankers a loss of responsibility, a loss of personal responsibility. Combined with large amounts of money in the form of bonuses, that's very effective, I think. And that's really that's the, heart, that's the heart of what happened uh, over the last 10 years. And it's not a very long time this has been going on for. It's like 10 or, 10 or 15 years. It's really been... So you interrupted me before Sorry, I got Ross. to the point please of my keep sermon. Going. Sorry, please keep going. We've got to do better. As individuals, we have to do better than take our ethical standards from what, are, what is everybody else doing around me? Am I no worse than everybody else? You've really got to have some kind of higher level from which you determine what is acceptable behaviour for yourself uh, r- rather than just say being able to tell yourself everybody's doing it. Now, some people would, have, would put their own meaning into that higher level. One of the questions I always I try and ask myself is, would my father behave this way? Sorry, Tim, you seem to want to... Oh, I was so inspired by Reverend Gittins that I wanted to, <laughs> to pick up. Uh, well, it is true that the, the, the film that uh, Ross mentioned, Margin Call, showed the ethical dilemmas and the institutional uh, house of cards that fell down. There's also going to be a new movie out called My Big Fat Greek Debt um, coming soon. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, uh, perhaps Hollywood can teach us more about the crisis. But I do, I do, I do think values um, matter, as, as Ross said. Um, um, and... Uh, Often you do get it from your parents and grandparents and so on. Um, we were saying out there before, my, my grandfather was actually training to be a rabbi, but he wanted to be a Bondi lifesaver. He also was an atheist, which he thought made it difficult in his occupation. Yeah. And he actually changed our family name from Harkovitz to Harcourt so he could get in the club. And he said he went from the Goldbergs to the Icebergs. But a couple of things he used to say to me was, one, he became a professional punter, and he said... Always back a horse called self-interest because it might not win, but it's always a trier. And the other thing he used to say to me was, um, they'll go to church on Sunday and they'll rob you on Monday. And un- unfortunately, um, when you... There. there is a split there. Well, well they're consistent because he saw people as running self-interest as the way the economy worked. Mm-hmm. But I actually agree with Ross because the values you have on Sunday or on Saturday mm-hmm. or Friday yeah. uh, and the values that you have uh, when you're in the office... Um, should have some consistency. And uh, we live in a world of second best, as the economists say, an imperfect world. But you can have some to degree of moral compass to at least, at least guide you most of the time. Moral yeah. compass, that's the that's word. That's it, that's the word. <laughs> but I'd, I'd like to actually unpack a little bit more what it is that is then really driving this sort of almost, um, you know, 
pathological behaviour that we're observing. And I've got a few thoughts that I'd like to toss to you. But really, the, picking up on what you said, Ross, about the need to have an external reference or a moral compass. Uh, when Professor Ian Harper, an economist, gave the 2009 Smith Lecture, he quoted a sociologist by the name of Robert Lane. And this is what Robert Lane wrote in his work, The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies. If your life is driven only by extrinsic motivations, extrinsic goals rather than intrinsic goals, not only will you feel dissatisfied and empty, you'll actually make yourself sick. Self-gratification is ultimately futile. Is that what we're discussing here, do you think? A, a loss of an ability to find goals worth oh, yes. looking for? I think that I think that, that is highly pertinent to the... Uh global financial crisis. I mean, if you're a banker, and we're talking about the global financial crisis, there's a sense in which we're picking on bankers. Bankers are not the only imperfect people in our economy, uh, but they are the ones who screwed up worst in recent time. Uh, but... Some of my best friends are bankers. Right? Well, not anymore. <laughs> you do. You do need to uh, to to, cons to uh, consider the intrinsic nature of your job. I mean, you're there. You know, we we used to, before the GFC, there were plenty of economists telling us how wonderful the explosion of the financial services sector was, what a great thing it was for all of us, how risk was being shared, managed more successfully. turned out that risk was being managed very, very badly. And that's, you know, when you have a disaster like that, that's when all the risk comes together and explodes. At any rate, what you really need to be doing if you're taking an intrinsic attitude to your own job is doing your job well for its own sake. And that means if you're helping people manage risk, you focus on helping them manage risk. If you're helping people uh, borrow to buy a home, that's what you... You focus on making sure that they get a decent deal, a fair deal, that they pay a, a fair price and they get value for money. That's the intrinsic approach. When you start saying, well, look, I'm actually a bit bored by all this. I'm really, I'm really, uh, what I'm attracted to is that this particular deal would make me a lot more money than that deal over there. That's when you switch to an extrinsic approach where you're not, you're not doing it because there are useful, worthwhile, beneficial things that bankers do to help other people in the society. You're doing it because you want the money. So we've lost sight then possibly of the role we're playing in society for the good of others. Yes. Um, I'd like to pick up though on a and comment. I might say the point is that I believe that when you stick to looking for intrinsic satisfaction, there's a lot about this in my book by the way, <laughs> uh, a lot of discussion of uh, the relationship between money and happiness and work and happiness. When you stick to doing your job well, one, you get a lot of satisfaction out of it, I believe, and two, you are helping other people to achieve their objectives, helping people uh, 
meet, find their dreams, as uh, I heard Gail Kelly saying the other day. You didn't know that bank, West Bank bankers were on about helping people fulfill their dreams, explore their dreams, but apparently that's what they are. Well, actually, you can be genuinely about that. Well, it's you good may to have, not be, but you can be. It, it's good to have a good word for bankers. Um, but Oliver, you mentioned you know that scenario of someone whose salary just increases fivefold, and the temptation to think that our value is how much we contribute. Is it because we we really only can, in the end of the day, value things which have a price? Do you think? Well, it's easier to value things that have numbers around them, as we all know. Um, but um, look, I think part of it is due to the fact that. You took a, a large number of young, youngish people um, uh, from the best schools and you pushed them through this, this sort of factory for, for how to make money. And it's hardly surprising that they all made lots of money but at other people's expense. You know, I, I don't think there's anything unusual in the nature of human beings that that, that that happened. And I think, unfortunately, what's going to happen is, or perhaps fortunately what's going to happen is that people realize that, that banking, by its very nature, in a sense, is a utility not least because you have uh, the too-big-to-fail doctrine supporting it. And so it will go back to being, I think, a, a, a much duller and, and less money-making type of a business, thankfully. You know, I think it will go back to that. But I think your, your question really has got another a- angle to it, which is, um, you know, is, there, is it possible for people to actually have values that, that they can actually take, you know, with some courage and some perseverance that they can actually apply. And uh, I think it's the lack of people willing to do that and to stand up. Because I can remember in my career, you know, a handful of people that stood up and said, this is wrong, and I'm not going to support it, even though there was some risk to them in, in doing it. And we need more people like that. There needs to be a, you know, a culture in the, in the banking system that encourages that. Jim, three quick points. Yeah. Um, uh, Adam Smith, um, the father of economics, was actually a moral philosopher, and his theory of moral sentiments is probably a more important track than the wealth of nations. And he always had a moral point to how we uh, how we engage and grow the economy. On the other hand, Milton Friedman, the father of free market economics, always said um, the only moral duty of uh, a business is to make a profit, and that's that. Um, I was, quite a shift in two centuries. Quite a shift. I was talking to Paul, Paul Keating uh, a couple of months ago, and he said his dad was an employer. Um, he made a concrete uh, mixing business in Bankstown, member of the Labor Party, um, profoundly religious. He thought he should be a good employer because his values um, portrayed that. And in some ways, it's not just uh, you know waving the finger at these naughty bankers and so on. I think people on the centre left need to also. Um, put their case against unfettered capitalism, against the ravages of the free market. Um, If you look at the post-war performance of uh, the welfare state in Britain, uh, in Europe, in the United States, never have, in the history of civilization since Moses was wearing short pants, have so many people had so many life chances. Because of the the National Health Service, because of the provision of public goods and public Education. So I actually think people who believe in uh, fairness and strong institutions need to put their case uh, a bit stronger out there. Um, Ross, I might turn to you. You're, you're, as an economist, you must like equations. Um, you've written on the issue of happiness. I, I take it that 
we think that if we have more stuff, we'll have more choice. And if we have more choice, we'll have more freedom and therefore we'll be happier. Is there a problem with that equation? Well, there is. And by the way, <laughs> if I was happy with equations, I'd be working in a university. <laughs> for, for the money. I, I'm happy to write, have a, be in a field of economics where you're only allowed to use words and the occasional number, but definitely no equations. Uh, sorry, what was the question? Is <laughs> um, basically our drive for stuff driven oh, by... Oh, yes, 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 yes. Look, I think it's simpler than your equation. Uh, the fact is that we do gain gratification from getting a pay rise, buying a new fridge, buying a new car, buying a new house. The problem with that is that the gratification doesn't last very long. It's fleeting. Uh, you get used to the new car, the new house, you get used to your new salary level and then, and then aspirations take over where you start saying, well, really, if only I had a bit more money or if only I had a bit bigger house, I'd really be a lot happier. Now, we can go on playing that game all our lives. The uh, psychologists call it the hedonic treadmill, where you're on there, you're running, and there's always something you're running towards that is going to make you happier. You never really get any happier, but you keep running, you keep acquiring all these things. We've got to get uh, above that and realise that although there is enormous temptation in all our minds and lives to fall for this proposition that a bit more, a, a better car, whatever, would make us happier, that it won't. It never has in the past. It won't in the future. And there ought to be other, some other things that offer us much more lasting satisfaction. I believe those things are about doing your job well, finding a job you like, and moving around until you do find a job you like, quite probably that job will be something that you're actually good at. If you can get into the combination of being good at it because you like it and liking it because you're good at it, you're really winning. And then after that, you start worrying about finding someone who'll pay you a reasonable wage to do it. People can be locked up. People can be imprisoned by the fact that I hate this job but I'm sending it, spending every cent of the money they pay me. So I'm just unable to move to a job that I might find a lot more satisfying, but it um, but doesn't pay as well. There are any number of people who are imprisoned in that way, who lack freedom. You, but we've just got to control our own materialist urges and realise that things like our relationships and uh, the satisfying jobs can in fact give us far more satisfaction than continually acquiring stuff. You've used some pretty strong imagery of being imprisoned in this hedonic treadmill. Um, Oliver, uh, if we think of Jesus, he quite famously said, you know, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance mm. of his possessions. So how do you personally grapple with this tension? Well, Jesus also said, um, you know, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I mean, 
when I look at that sort of an issue, I think obviously Jesus is using a sort of a form of exaggeration to make a point. And um, the point he's making is that your life is, as Ross was saying, your life can be empty if all you're pursuing is pleasure. Pleasure is, is, is very unsatisfying. It does fill up your life to some degree, but it, it, it leaves it empty, especially as you get older. And uh, psychologists will always say that, you know, what you need in, what, what can fill up a life, and if a full life is a happy life or a, or a satisfying life, a full life, you know, what you can fill it up with is pleasure, which we've talked about, engagement, which is really your, where your passion lies, or meaning, or, or, or a combination of all three. And I think life is such that it is a combination of all three. But I think it's, you know, for, for me anyway, the, the issue that um, changed my life dramatically was when I began to get some meaning in my life. And, I, and, and yes, I was engaged in banking as a young man. I was, had a fantastic career and working in different countries around the world. I was thoroughly engaged. And I was getting plenty of pleasure, too, uh, and stuff. But what really changed my life was when I, when I found the Christian message to be true, and then I began to get a sense of meaning. And that began to change everything, including the way I did my job and my values and so on and so forth. So Jesus was a tradie, so he would have done very well in today's labour market. His job wouldn't have been sent offshore to India. <laughs> and and you find you try finding a Jewish carpenter in the eastern suburbs on a Saturday. You would have done very well, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we're sadly going to uh, need to wrap up our discussion now at this point. And thank you for the questions, some of which we've we've weaved in. Um, I will ask each of our speakers just to, for a final word on the issue of well, GFC two. What have we learned? So, what what would be your parting advice? I might go to. Uh, Okay, Oliver and then Tim and, and Ross, I'll leave you the last word. So, Oliver. Well, I think this has been an exceptional period, this, this GFC. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think actually we're very fortunate that it was handled, um, at the time it was happening, it was handled by people like Bernanke who really, I think, understood what, what might happen if things felt, really fell off the spoon. So I think, you know, we, we will slowly get past it but it's going to be a, a very slow process and the, the, the world economy is not going to do well. Australia is very fortunate in having such a good connection with China. So I think what I'd like to see is, is, is a gradual return of banking to being more of a boring utility than a growth stock. Just two things. On a, on a macro level, um, governments and policy economists can make a difference. In the Great Depression, we cut wages, we fix the exchange rate, we cut the budget... We, made, we put up tariffs, we made the recession a depression. In this crisis, we uh, ensured we had open trade, we had a floating dollar, we had a stimulus package, and we made sure that wages grew in line with, with productivity. So we did, we did well in Australia. So you can make a difference. And at the micro level, your values do matter, as, as Ross said, in terms of looking for happiness. Um, my wife was in a, in a book club, uh, and she used to come home and say, gee, I hate going to this book club because... They're all bankers and lawyers and gynaecologists from South Africa and they live in these big houses in Bronte. I feel very poor. And I said to her, well, the answer is we don't have to make more money. Just find a cheaper book club. Uh, um, so how we, how, we, how we think about relative wages matters as well. Okay. Ross. I think uh, one of the big lessons is we need, in many areas, we need balance, not too much of one and too much, or too much of the other, finding the right trade-off between uh, the conflicting objectives that we have. I think that that's 
a principle that's relevant for the regulation of banks. I think, uh, have we learnt what we need to learn out of the global financial crisis? I don't think we have. We've learnt some and we've implemented some. But as we're all very well aware, the implications of that crisis have got a lot further to run and there'll be a lot more lessons to be learnt and things to be done. That's at the government level, but I'm a great believer. I, I, I'm never in a, I'm never a believer in saying it's down to the individual. If you've got problems, it's all your fault and, and you, you ought to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. When people say, oh, it's the system, there's truth to that. But I won't go to the other extreme either of saying it's the system, so you bear no responsibility for your part as a cog in the great wheel. Uh, and uh, you can just make excuses for all the terrible things in your life because you have no choices. We do have choices. We can influence things. We can't transform them, but we can influence them a bit, and we ought all to be working on playing, making the part that we play a better part and solving our own problems to the extent that we can. Well, thank you very much, Ross. Well, I hope today has... Uh stirred you into thinking about perhaps uh, what are some of the underlying reasons for this crisis and some of the lessons that we should be considering, not just for the economy but really for ourselves as individuals. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.